Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. God speaks it to us. We do want him to be at work in us as we hear his word preached. Uh, so let's ask him to help. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, please do be at work in us by your Spirit. Please do tune our heads and hearts to eternal realities, to the truth of the gospel. Please work in us uh, so that we do have that knowledge which is clear about what's good and that desire which knows and chooses what's excellent. So that more and more we will be pure and blameless as we wait for the day of Christ Jesus when we will see him and glory in what you have done through your son by your spirits to your great glory amen to begin by asking uh, what would be different about your monday to sunday if the gospel was true does the way you think and feel and live say loudly the gospel of Christ is good and it is true? If you're curious but not yet committed, well, obviously not. Uh, you're not convinced that it is, not convinced it's true or not convinced it's good. We hope that being around with us helps you see that we are and helps you come to see that the gospel is true and that the gospel is good. I think most of us in Sojourn that we are convinced that the gospel is true and good, but we also know that our lives don't always say it is. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm mentioning it because I think it helps us think about change. See, this passage really is about living more and more as if Christ's gospel is good and true. That's the one thing Paul wanted for the, the Christians in Philippi, what he wanted them to do. It's the one thing that God wants and demands of all Christian people. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do this one thing, do this essential thing. Live as if Christ's gospel is good and true. All day, every day, live that way. Think and feel and decide and speak and act as if it is all good and true. Live as if Christ's gospel is good and true because it is. It sounds simple. Uh, maybe it sounds too simple, too narrow to be the big picture filter for uh, thinking about all of life. But the gospel touches every thought and attitude and decision and word and action. Public, private, big things, little things. It touches them and demands a radical rethink. It revolutionizes our, our, our feelings, our desires. It reorients uh, the daily details, the overall goals, the priorities of our lives. Last week we saw the gospel define Paul's perspective on his situation. We saw the gospel define his goals and priorities in life and in death. 
He has been living as if Christ's gospel is good and true. His thankfulness and joy, his prayers, his priorities, his goals only make sense if the gospel is good and true. The gospel is why he is convinced death would be better for him. The gospel is also why he wants to live a little longer. Uh, so that he can get to speak the gospel to them for their progress and joy in the faith. His life only makes sense if there is a loving God who made us and everyone will answer to him. His life only makes sense if everyone is immortal, if people who reject God's loving rule deserve God's judgment after death. If Jesus died our death, faced our judgment, was raised to rule, and now gives forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who trusts in him. Paul's life only makes sense if life is short and if everyone's eternal future is either the horror of hell or the delight of heaven. And the best love for others is pointing them to Jesus who gives life. You see, the gospel is why Paul calls them, us, to live as if it is true. Why he called them to live as if it's true, whether he's there to preach and say it for himself, or whether he's hearing from a distance what their lives look like. But the gospel touches every thought, attitude, decision, word, action. We've seen some of how it is shaped Paul. Here at verse 27, Paul begins to explore what a life worthy of the gospel of Christ looks like. He tells us what fits in a life where the gospel is good. <laughs> Sorry. What fits in life if Christ's gospel is good and true. As far as we get this week, it includes standing together for gospel truth and having the same mind as one another, which is the mind of Christ Jesus. The first and obvious thing the gospel demands is heads and hearts and lives of people who believe it is standing together for the truth of the gospel. Standing together for gospel truth. Halfway through verse 27, he wants to see and hear their standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by their opponents. Like soldiers holding the line in the battle, defending their homeland, refusing to be pushed back by enemy soldiers, uh, absolutely committed to holding their position. That's the core idea of the rest of this, past, this chapter. Uh, it expands on standing firm together in one spirit, a united team who are aligned in the depths of their of their being, standing firm together with one mind, striving side by side, fighting uh, with all the effort and with a single agreed goal, acting like there's a hive mind directing our determined defense of the faith of the gospel. And that's what we stand firm in the defense of, the faith of the gospel. 
the things God has spoken that we are convinced are good and true. God's call is for each one of us and all of us together to fight, to argue, to persuade, to refuse to be moved from the truth of the gospel. Not bending to fit with what others say. Not, not satisfied when we see uh, someone drifting. Aiming to persuade others. Refusing to be intimidated by others. Verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, the guy who wrote this letter had opponents. He'd been beaten black and blue and held overnight without charge when he first preached in Philippi. Uh, ten years later, writing this letter, he's imprisoned in Rome and might soon be executed because he refuses to be frightened by his opponents. And he's just talked about how his imprisonment served to advance the gospel. Verse 28, he says, When you stand firm together, defending and confirming the gospel and refusing to be intimidated by the thought police, when you stand firm together, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. You see, it says something when we stand firm. When we stand up to intimidation around what God says in the Bible. It says we are absolutely convinced that what we believe is good and it is true. We're convinced that to leave the gospel and think what others think would be leaving what's true and leaving what's best. We're convinced the gospel of Christ saves that alternatives fail. It says even more when intimidation becomes action. Christians standing their ground in countries where conversion to Christianity brings swift injustice. Christians standing their ground in cultures where accepting but not approving is considered hate and ruins reputations. When Christians stand their ground and keep holding on to the gospel, which is both good and true, and holding it in spite of the cost, it says to the intimidators, you will meet God as judge. He has saved us and we are better off with ruined reputations or suffering physical harm or going to our deaths than we would be if we were to join you. God will bring us to his eternal home. It says something, and under God, the intimidators may hear, may turn, may trust, may be saved. So stand firm, stand firm together, defending and confirming the gospel and refusing to be intimidated because of what it says to them. And verse 29, because suffering like that is given by God. See verse 29? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's not just under the control of God who controls everything. It's not just uh, one of the things that God is able to work for good. Suffering for the sake of Christ 
is one of God's good gifts. God gives faith in Jesus and God gives suffering for his for Jesus' sake. It would have been easy for the Philippians uh, to wonder if they'd done something to accept God when suffering started. Paul's saying, no, not true. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a gift to get to stand up to intimidation. God gives faith and trust in him. And he gives situations where we get to demonstrate that trust and point to the unsurpassed value of what we have in Christ by losing other things that we might hold firmly to him. God points to the eternal realities of destruction and salvation as his people stand firm together defending and confirming the gospel and refusing to be intimidated. Verse 30, he always has. Uh, at first the Philippians were spectators uh, watching Paul, but it does come to them and it continued to come to Paul. Now, sojourners, the intimidation we face, it's unlikely to threaten physical violence. But there is intimidation nonetheless. Mostly the danger is what people will think of us. Uh, sometimes it's whether people will talk to us. It can even be whether friends will still be friends with us. It's vital that we don't get sucked in by the idea that we can live faithfully and have all people speak well of us. It's energizing to hear God say the pressure on us to be silent, the pressure on us to shift has been on believers for generations and generations and generations. And we can read their stories and see how they stood. It's energizing to hear that he gives the situations where our trust in him will allow us to stand. And that our stand says there is rescue in Jesus and no one else. We must stand firm together, defending and confirming the gospel and refusing to be intimidated. That's one aspect of a life which is worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. One aspect of living as if Christ's gospel is good and true because we're absolutely convinced it is. The gospel has implications uh, for how we face intimidation and has implications for how we face each other, how we relate to each other. Have a look at uh, chapter two, verse one. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, Paul doesn't doubt any of those. He could just as well have said, if there's any water in the ocean, if there's any sand in the Simpson deserts, he's saying, since there obviously is, and you know there is, encourage the encouragement of forgiveness in Christ, the comfort of knowing yourself loved by Jesus, the spirit who works in you as he does in others. And since you obviously know you are the objects, you are the people who the Lord Jesus has set his affection and sympathy on your love by Jesus. 
then let these gospel realities shape you so that you are of the same mind with one another. The rest of uh, verse 3 and 4 begin to describe uh, that sort of mind, that sort of thinking. Our translations uh, give us more commands, more command words. Uh, they, they do that to make it more, uh, read more naturally in English. But it's all expanding on what it means to have the same mind. Paul's joy is to see God doing his good work in them. And this is the particular work he's looking for. Them being of the same mind, which includes having the same love, being in full agreement, as if one inner self and uh, gives them the same purpose, uh, each one of them, all of them, the same purpose. Having one mind, one central thoughts, not doing anything for personal prestige, but giving what but giving what's best for others more weight than they give to what's best for themselves. Not looking only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's exactly the mindset we heard Paul describe last week. His head and heart and life tuned to gospel realities, experiencing real joy when the gospel spread as a result of his imprisonment, even rejoicing when it spread through people who did it to hurt him and to promote their own personal prestige. We saw him weighing up life and death and seeing that what's best for him would be to depart to be with Christ and at the same time wanting to live longer because he could serve them. Because he could serve them with the gospel and he could see that would be best for them. For Paul, considering others more significant than himself and desiring what's better for them, not just what's better for him, meant living longer and seeing his life as one to spend in order to serve them with the gospel of Christ. His joy will be complete when they have the same mind. And in verses 5 to 11, he says where he got his mind from. It's the mind which he has in Christ Jesus. It's the mind which they have in Christ Jesus. Which I think is his way of saying it's already yours and it needs to be more. It needs to shape every aspect of every day. He wants all of them to have the mind of Christ Jesus. This is how Christ Jesus thought. Verse 5. Though he, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is an important passage for what we think about who Jesus is. Who he has always been, even from before his birth. Who he is now as the one 
who is already exalted above every authority, who will one day be recognized when every knee bows. And by every knee, every angelic power, every human person, every demonic force, all will bow and confess with joy and delight or sorrow and distress that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an important passage for what we think about who Jesus is as the eternal Son. God the Son, the Lord of all, the man who walked the earth, is God who made the universe. And we need to understand that or we'll miss the point of what Paul is saying. And the point is to think about what self-interest could have involved for Jesus. He was above all, above everyone and everything, but he stooped to serve us. He could have continued on immortal and untouchable, invulnerable to death, untouchable by pain, already glorious. God the Son could have continued glorious and praised by his angelic creatures, above all with nothing and no one above him and everything and everyone below him, with no possibility of pain and no possibility of death, no possibility of shame. But God the Son was born to die. The one with nothing and no one above him stepped down. He became a servant, a human. And already brought low by becoming a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedience to the point of death. And not just death, the pain and shame the pain and shame-filled death of the cross. The judgment of God facing death of the cross. You can imagine him weighing it up. Service, pain, death, shame. They're not reasons for God, the Son, to become human. Kind of belong as reasons for him to continue as God the Son, not human, invulnerable to pain and death. If he'd acted only in self interest, with everything and everyone below him. If it acted only out of self-interest, everything and everyone would have remained below him. But in his love for us and in obedience to his Father, he did what is best for us. He gave it what's best for us more weight than what's best for him. What is conduct worthy of the gospel? Well, it's conduct that comes from heads and hearts that prioritize what God the Son prioritized. Others above ourselves. Not only our own interests, but 
also the interests of others. Paul will mention uh, how God worked these things in Timothy and Epaphroditus as we read on. He's shown us how God worked them in him. He and they followed Jesus in the path of self-denial. And knowing they followed the path of self-denial and they knew what was up ahead. What was up ahead was the joy of seeing God finish his work. The joy of seeing God doing his work while they lived. The joy of seeing God finish his work in them. The joy beyond this life of seeing Christ Jesus in his exalted glory. But we'll explore it more as we, over time. But here's the answer to what am I for? Here's the answer to what is this life for? There's more to say about what a life worthy of the gospel of Christ includes. Uh, how it fits with knowing God who works uh, in his people. And we'll pick that up next week. Meanwhile, though, we've got enough to be thinking about and asking God to, to work in us and to tune our heads, hearts and lives to. There are things that need to change. The change is by faith. I think that really, that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is what I'm trying to get at with that, that hopefully somewhat provocative phrase of talking about it as living as if Christ's gospel is good and true. The gospel is worth defending because there is no other gospel that saves. Sojourners are worth standing with because we're for one another. Normal Christian life is determined defense of the truth and goodness of the gospel and its other person-centered service. Because that's what fits in life if the gospel is good and true. Normal Christian life is devoting ourselves to seeing one another keep in step with the Spirit and not lose heart. It's ordering our lives around seeing men, women and children in Brisbane and the nations Meet Christ Jesus in whom we delight. Since the gospel is both good and true, let's live as if it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed what is true. What is true in what we see around us, what is true in the unseen, eternal realities. Thank you that you've revealed them to us in your Son and in his Gospel. Father, please do continue to convince and persuade us in our heads and in our hearts of what is true. We ask that your Gospel will shape us. So that more and more we will live 
lies which command and defend and point to the goodness and the truth of your word, of your son as the one who has brought a perfect salvation. And that's in him we pray. Amen.